Hey guys, it's Tony, producer of VetSpeak, and I want to let you know about one of our sponsors, and that's DDPY. DDPY is yoga, traditional fitness, dynamic resistance, and sports therapy combined to give you the ultimate workout plan. And guess what? DDP is giving all veterans 50% off forever. That's right, guys. From here to the end of time, DDP is taking care of you, the veteran, by giving you 50% off the app and 50% off all DVDs. So what do you get from DDPY? Well, you get a kick-ass cardio workout, you increase your flexibility, you strengthen your core muscles, and you experience almost no joint impact. So you may have heard about some of the celebrities going around using DDPY, like Darius Rucker from Hootie and the Blowfish, Chris Jericho, AJ Styles, and comedian Gabriel Iglesias. But maybe you don't know that he's been helping veterans since the beginning, like Arthur Borman, who previously walked with crutches and leg braces. Now he's doing complete headstands all by himself, thanks in part to DDPY. So go to ddpyoga.com and sign up today. Click the drop-down box, select VetSpeak, and let them know you heard it right here first. I want to tell you about another sponsor we have at Next Level Martial Arts and Fitness in Tigard, Oregon. They partnered with Mission 22 and VetSpeak to help end the veteran suicide epidemic. And you know what? They also want to help veterans and their families find a healthy and exciting activity that they can enjoy. So what are they doing? They're offering discounted rates and scholarships for veterans because they believe that physical fitness coupled with the discipline and camaraderie that comes with training in martial arts can assist veterans and people of all backgrounds in dealing with depression, anxiety, PTSD, and other associated issues. So give them a call, 503-443-1599, or check them out online, www.nextlevelmartialartsgym.com. That's www.nextlevelmartialartsgym.com. This is Nate Rock Quarry bringing you VetSpeak. I want to thank Receptor Naturals, ReceptorNaturals.com, for giving me the CBD medication that I've been using that's really helped change my life, get me off of some of the opioid prescriptions I've been on for the past several years. And now I'm back in the gym training in jiu-jitsu, 100% thanks to ReceptorNaturals.com. And of course, I am your zombie cage fighter, zombiecagefighter.com. You can get a free PDF of my comic book, my biographical horror story. It speaks of my life as a fighter and as a single father at the time, plus zombies. How can you go wrong with that? And now, without further ado, let's speak. All right, this is Nate Rockquarry here with Vet Speak. My guest today, Devin, tell me who you are, your service, all your good stuff. What stories do you want to tell me about your time in the military? I appreciate it, Nate. Uh, thanks for having me on here. It's uh, it's a little interesting to be on a podcast. I've you know been listening to them for years and years and years back from when like the Adam Carolla show transitioned from radio show to podcast and bunch others. So it's a uh, it's an odd experience to actually uh, actually be on one now and a little weird. Uh, we'll see how it goes though. Uh, so for my military uh, background, uh, I came into the military or a little more roundabout way than uh, a lot of people uh, do. You, you see a lot of people that, you know, their fa- their father was in the military, their mom was in the military, their grandparents were in the military. You know, it's a whole lineage going back years and years and years. Um, you know, everyone they've been around has been in the military. And it was, it was a very different experience for me. Uh, my dad was a uh, high school teacher growing up. Uh, my mom worked as a substitute and administrative aide in the school system. Uh you know, both my grandparents were in World War II, or my grandfathers were in World War II, because everyone was in World War II, pretty much. Um, but uh, the reality is, like, I didn't really have any exposure to the uh, military growing up. And if anything, it was kind of the uh, kind of the opposite. Um, my dad was actually extremely anti-military. And so, really, I didn't get, like, 
I didn't have a very positive view of the military growing up because that's all, you know, I was presented with, you know, and uh, I didn't really, like, I didn't really live in a military area. I grew up in the D.C. area, which, of course, has the Pentagon and, you know, a lot of bases, but it's so heavily populated that, you know, there's... The, you know, it's also, you know, the military isn't like this sort of overarching presence like it is in a lot of military towns. So I didn't really have like a lot of experience or anything with that uh, while I was growing up. Um, but I did figure out pretty, uh, pretty early on I wanted to fly. Uh, I just really wasn't sure how I was going to do that or what I was going to do with it. It was just a thing I wanted to do. And that's as far as I'd really went with it. Um, and then, uh, when I was in high school, I had a buddy that was, uh, in this uh, organization called civil air patrol, which, uh, he's like, Oh, well, if you join, they give you like six free flying lessons with it. I'm like, Oh, well, that sounds pretty cool. Um, come to find out though, it was the, uh, civilian auxiliary of the air force. Um, so they had this cadet program where you could join like as a kid, kind of similar to J ROTC, um, you wore sort of Air Force style uniforms at the time. You had ranks, like I said, it was very sort of uh, J Rotsy ish. And uh, so I decided, man, oh, I want to fly. This is a great way to check it out. And um, so I joined up with it. And uh, I mean, the first day I came home, like in the Air Force style uniform, there, like, my dad wouldn't even talk to me. Mm. Like it was, it was a good 24 hours before we even had like a conversation about anything again. So he, he was not a fan of that and uh, not particularly supportive. But uh, as I kind of went on with it, I sort of realized the people I was around and especially cause you had a lot of like active duty people that were helping or veterans and that kind of stuff. And I was like, Oh, these people actually seem pretty cool. And like, they kind of have their shit together. I, I probably should have asked ahead of time if I'm allowed to curse on this podcast. It's your, okay. it's your world, my friend. Right, we're good. Um, but they seem like they had their shit together and everything. So I'm like, Oh, all right. Well, um, you know, maybe, maybe I've kind of had it wrong this whole time. You know, maybe the military isn't this horrible thing that, uh, you know, my dad was making it out to be. Uh, and that kind of sort of started me down that path. And originally I just thought, well, maybe I can fly for the coast guard. Cause you know, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's military ish kind of military light, uh, apologize to any coast guard guys <laughs> that are listening, uh, right now. But I was like, okay, I can, I can go with that. And then, um, Eventually, I sort of started looking into the Air Force and realizing, well, like, you know, if, if I want to fly, maybe the the service that's, you know, entirely revolved around flying might be a better way to go for that, especially because the sort of pilot path in the Coast Guard was very, uh, it was very difficult to get into. You know, it, right. they're, they're not set up to take in pilots, you know, they're set up to take in basically you know, surface officers and stuff like that. So Seaman. exactly. If, if you will, you know, so Seaman. to speak. Uh, so we, uh, so I, just, I started looking into, um, the air force, uh, tried to get into the air force Academy, uh, had a nomination, uh, and everything like that, uh, didn't work out. Uh, it was sort of my first exam intro to things can actually get really fucked up in the military for no good reason at all. Um, you know, I, I had my nomination and everything and, um, came back with, well, you're not qualified. And the liaison officer's like, what do you mean he's not qualified? Yes, he is. And I'm like, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. And this went back and forth. And they're like, oh, our bad he was. <laughs> but by this time, like all the nomination, the appointments had started going out and everything. And they're like, well, if you, if you wait a year, we'll, we'll pretty much guarantee you get it next year. And I was like, I, I really just don't want to hang out for a year doing nothing, waiting to get into this place. So I decided to go the uh, ROTC route. Uh, one of the best decisions I ever made at that point um, I mean, seriously, like, I think I would have been miserable at the academy. I loved having a normal college experience. I liked being able to, you know, go out and drink and do whatever without, you know, all of these sort of restrictions and everything that comes along with the academy. Um, Can you explain what that is, our ROTC? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, ROTC, it's a reserve officer training corps. It's basically a... Uh, 
program in college where you take uh, military classes, uh, you do military-specific training during the summer, and then when you graduate college, you commission as an officer the sort of the same, uh, same day. Okay. So it's, it's sort of like you spread out all of your officer training over the course of four years with sort of the basic training elements of it uh, happening in the summer time, yeah. like when you're out of school and stuff like that. So uh, commissioned through that, like I said, it was, it was a great experience. Uh, I loved, I went to Virginia Tech, absolutely had a blast there. Um, again, talking to my friends who went to the academy, was, I, I think I made the right call. Uh, a good buddy of mine, uh, the way he put it was the best thing somebody can tell you having come from the academy is, oh, you don't seem like you went to the academy. <laughs> yeah, they, they sort of, you don't get that uh, social education that I think a lot of people do in college when you're kind of in that sort of insular in- environment, you know, mm-hmm. or um, you, you're not really interacting with anybody um, that's outside of that environment and really learning how to deal with people from different backgrounds and different, uh, you know, different paths of life and everything like that. Um, so yeah, uh, ROTC commissioned, went out, uh, was in pilot training pretty much 10 days after I commissioned, uh, flew the T6, uh, out of Laughlin Air Force Base for six months doing all the, uh, cool like loops and rolls and high G stuff. Uh, and I went in like with most people deciding like, oh, either I want to be a fighter pilot or I want to fly helicopters. Like almost everybody wants to fly, uh, fighters. The, the helicopter portion is a little less popular, or at least it used to be, uh, but all through uh, college, I was a, a volunteer firefighter EMT at the uh, local uh, rescue squad and fire department. And uh, so I kind of got into that rescue mindset and really um, realized I really enjoyed that. And so the sort of rescue aspect of helicopters really appealed to me. Mm. And I figured out uh, pretty quickly in pilot training that I didn't want to be a fighter pilot. Um, mainly, we, we, it kind of really crystallized for me. Uh, we were doing what's called an area solo where you go up by yourself, uh, no instructor. It's your second flight without an instructor, and you just go up to the practice area, so, you know, between, like, 10, 20,000 feet, and you just have a block of airspace and a maneuver card, and you're supposed to do all the maneuvers on it a couple times, your loops, rolls, spins, immelmans, split S's, you know, all the, like, you know, kind of cool high G stuff. Uh, and, you know, I did every maneuver on the card and, you know, looked down and, like, man, I got 45 minutes left up here. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm bored as shit. <laughs> like, you know, I've, I've done it. Okay, it was cool, but I kind of want to go do something else now. Mm. And so that made me realize that, you know, the, maybe the fighter stuff isn't for me because, you know, I, I realized sort of what I want to do more was like what appealed to me more was like going out and like doing the missions and like doing operational stuff. And, uh, you know, I, I realized I had enjoyed, you know, driving an ambulance or riding the fire truck uh, far more than I enjoyed just, you know, cruising around, like chasing clouds and stuff like that. So I thought the helicopters would be perfect for me for that. Uh, you do get a little bit of shit as the, the helicopter guy in, in, in a flight school there because everyone's gunning for the fighters and they're like, y- you want what? <laughs> like, why? You know, although interestingly enough, uh, as kind of the, you know, war on terror stuff, uh, you know, went on and on and on down the road, uh, people saw helicopters getting more and more involved and the fighters weren't really doing a lot. And uh, from what I've been told these days, it's kind of flopped around and that uh, a lot more people are interested in the helicopter track just because they see them out there, you know, mm. getting into it. Whereas the fighters are just kind of, you know, you're 20,000 feet dropping a GPS guided bomb and straight and level and then going back home after that. So I think people are starting to realize the, the appeal of it, at least, uh, which I approve of. Um, so, yeah, I uh, got to helicopter training. Uh, initially, I flew Hueys, uh, which was and it was, a, it was a cool experience. I was uh, flying off the California coast. Um, 
doing uh, space launch support for Vandenberg. We also did uh, counter-narcotics stuff, wildland firefighting, a little bit of search and rescue. Uh, But that was also like an interesting experience for me in that uh, the Huey is not a deployable aircraft. Right. The, it's, you know, every aircraft we had on the line out there was either a 1968 or a 1969 uh, model. You know, a couple of them you could see where they still patch bullet holes up from Vietnam in them. And, you know, here we are in 2006 flying these things. So obviously, you know, they're not survivable in a combat environment anymore. Hmm. So as a Huey guy, you basically, at least at the time, you didn't deploy. And, uh, you know, that was starting to sort of, you know, especially as a young pilot, eat at me, like, I, I wanted to get out there, you know, I wanted to get into it and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I would always feel guilty, like, uh, for example, once we flew a two-ship down to uh, Santa Barbara, just, you know, one of those great uses of taxpayer dollars where we had flight hours to put on the aircraft, so we decided to just fly down, get lunch, and fly back because you needed to put X amount of flight hours on the aircraft this week and nobody had anything else to do. <coughs> so we flew, like, eight of us down to uh, Santa Barbara, you know, had like a really nice lunch there. And at the end of the end of it, like, uh, the waitress comes up and she's like, Oh, um, you know, somebody got your check. And we're like, what? And she's like, Oh yeah, no, it's, it's all covered. And we're like, who? Oh, they go, oh, well, they didn't, they didn't want us to tell you. So, and I, I don't know. I just felt at that point, like extremely guilty about that. Mm. Cause it's like, man, I haven't done anything. <laughs> you know, like I picked one dude off the side of a cliff a couple months ago, but that's it. Like, you know, like these people think I'm, I'm somebody else. Like, you know, they, they think we're, you know, we're out. Like they see us, you know, like, oh no, we're fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. Cause you know, both were raging pretty good at that point. And you know, this other, they're paying, you know, hundreds and hundreds of dollars for us. Like we're just cruising to get lunch, man. We aren't doing anything. And so that, that was a really odd feeling for me and kind of like, you know, felt like a bit of, I don't know, imposter syndrome, I mm-hmm. guess you could call it. Like, we, we don't really deserve this, you know, and that was sort of a interesting experience for me. So at, at that point, you know, I was getting really antsy that, you know, I, I wanted to get in the fight and everything like that because, you know, sounds like a great idea when you haven't done it before, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I uh, eventually they decide that, you know, having a, Huey unit on the California coast was too good a deal, so they deactivated it um, and uh, shipped the helicopters off to, like, the missile fields up in uh, North Dakota and uh, Wyoming and places like that. Well, I had no desire to go up there. I am not a North Dakota, Wyoming, like, Montana kind of guy. Uh, didn't want – and I really – I knew I wanted to start getting into stuff, so I was able to transfer over to Combat Rescue at that point and fly the H-60. So I moved out to Vegas, uh, Nellis Air Force Base. Vegas, kind of the definition of a nice place to visit. You don't want to live there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was finally, you know, getting into the mission and stuff like that, which was cool uh, for me at the time, at least. Um, did a couple deployments out of there. Um, went to Iraq for my first one, which was also, it was, I mean, it was kind of eye-opening as my first deployment, but also very frustrating um, in that we didn't do a whole lot. Um, combat rescue deployments in the Air Force are very much like it's feast or famine, Either you were jobbing it, you're flying, you know, five missions in a shift, a 12-hour shift, or you're over there for five months, three to five months, and not flying a single mission the entire time I was there. Hmm. Uh, And that was also kind of my sort of intro to, man, like, maybe, you know the guys at the higher level don't always have this whole thing figured out. Like, you know, maybe like there's some issues with this. Um, like for example, we would get, uh, especially and this will lead into some stuff. I'll talk later about the, the air force in general, but, uh, like we would get, we got called for a couple missions while I was there. And like, for example, there was a army platoon that had been hit with a mortar 
And uh, the weather was just below what the dust-off medevac helicopters can fly in, but it was still within our regulations. So we could still fly, and those guys couldn't. Uh, it was daytime, relatively flat terrain. We all felt pretty comfortable with it. But uh, we were owned by this entity called the uh, JPRC, uh, Joint uh, Personnel Recovery Center, at, uh, which was based in Al-Udid. So they're not even in the same country as us, right? Those guys are in Qatar. And, uh, mm-hmm. and at the time, it was run by a guy that had flown tankers, like, you know, KC-135 is a big refueling. So you have an organization in a different country being run by somebody with no experience in rescue who directs whether we can or can't go. And so we said, hey, like, here's the situation. We're requesting launch authority at this time. And they come back with questions and more questions and more questions. And we're talking just, you know, Stuff that any helicopter guy wouldn't, you know, wouldn't even think twice about. But as a tanker guy, like, for example, one of the questions is, well, what if you can't land there? Well, we're, we're a helicopter. We're, we're going to hover because that's <laughs> the entire thing that helicopters do. Mm. And literally, it took an hour and a half of going through this. And finally, the Army medevac guys said, fuck it. We're just going to go, go, go get this guy, even though mm. it's below our minimums. And they went out and did it. Because we were sitting there for an hour and a half just, you know, dicking around trying to, like, get wow. permission to launch. And so stuff like that was extremely frustrating, um, you know. And then, uh, so, yeah, I went through my entire first deployment. I think we were out there for, it was a, um, it was only a 90-day rotation. So it was, wasn't very long at all. But, you know, we didn't fly single, or my shift didn't fly a single mission in that yeah. entire thing. So it's kind of frustrating. You, like, feel like, okay, now I've deployed. I've gotten in the war. And did absolutely nothing. There you go. So I get back. Um, then they uh, turn around, send me to Afghanistan for the next one. That was the total opposite. Um, you know, we're in that case. We were, you know, just like I said, just you know, four or five missions a shift. Just go, go, go. You know, you know, twelve hours a day. Sometimes you you wouldn't even get out of the helicopter. You just land. You'd refuel. They'd shove another nine line. Let's say a medevac request in your face, and you'd go back out again. Mm. Uh, but even then, you know, you could still see that, like, man, like we do not always have this all shit all together here. Like, uh, and, uh, you, it's just sort of disheartening to see like sort of how in some ways, like, especially again, it's sort of the command level. Things were just, you know, a complete cluster. Mm-hmm. Like, and we got launched once. Um, and it, it, was, it was, nobody could figure out what was going on. Cause obviously our, you know, we were doing medevac there. So our job is, you know, somebody gets hurt. We go out, we pick them up, we bring them back. And so we had to do a medevac, but, we were at the base and they wanted us to take him from the base to a smaller base, which, you know, that's, you know, opposite because you're always trying to move to a higher level of care, mm. right? So we're medevacking somebody to a lower level of care. Like this doesn't make any sense. So a C-130 came in with this patient. It was an Afghan kid and they drop him off and they're like, okay, you need to go take them to this you know, smaller base. And we're like, with no sort of explanation or and any kind of request for clarification, just came back with nothing. So we're like, all right, well, we got the assignment. We got to go do it. So we take off, and it's a dark night out, you know, and we get flying, and uh, we're crossing sort of over this little valley that's uh, right outside of Camp Bastion there. And uh, I'm in the Chalk 2, the second aircraft in the formation, and we get told, uh, check left, 30 degrees. Um, so check is basically a term that means just, you know, you're sort of a normal rate turn. You're just adjusting your heading with the formation. Uh, break would be the call you'd use for sort of a more emergency, like you need to turn immediately, something's going on. So they say check left. Okay, so we check left. And then we sort of see the lead aircraft start opening up with their 50 cal. And we're like, yeah, that's weird. 
Why are they? T- we already test fired. I don't know why they're test firing again. Like this isn't the area we usually test fire in. It's kind of populated. That doesn't seem like a smart idea. But we're we're just trucking along. Nothing's happening. So apparently, come to find out later, apparently there was you know heavy machine gun rounds were passing within you know fifty feet of the tail of our helicopter. No one could see them from our helicopter because they were, we were kind of back in a blind spot. But the other bird like never told us or anything that wow. what was happening. You know, so things are already getting like you know, a bit of a cluster in this engine. And then the uh, pararescue guys in the back of our helicopter, because we're the one of the patients, say, like, hey, this guy's flatlining back here. Like, huh. we, we need to do something, like, now. And we're, you know, a ways away from the base at this point, but uh, I checked the map, and um, our map says that there's a, a FOB with, like, a, you know, a forward surgical team, like, right below us. So we're like, okay, we can get out of this guy on the ground, like, right now. And they're like, yeah, if we, if we don't get this guy to higher level care, like he's not going to make it. So we basically, you know, bottom out the collective, dive out of the sky, and we're going down to uh, drop this guy off. And uh, we land at the FOB, and it's empty, except for a couple other helicopters on the other side. And like, there's no one coming out to meet us. Like, nothing, like, that's kind of odd. It's all blacked out. So the guys from the other helicopters uh, come over, and they're, uh, you know, the, uh, they're the guys that aren't there doing the stuff that's not happening. If you catch my drift, I'm like, what are you guys doing here? Mm-hmm. And we're like, hey, we got this guy who's crashing in the back of the helicopter. We're looking to, you know, get him to an FST or something. And they're like, well, this fob's closed, man. Huh. Like, there's, there's nothing here, you know? But the, uh, their medics, which are, you know, obviously, like, really good at what they do, they're like, all right, we'll, we'll come on and help you out. So those guys jump on the helicopter, and now we got to find our way to another uh, uh, hospital, whereas the, again, this guy's you know crashed. No, they're they're starting CPR in the back of the helicopter and everything. We got the uh, the medics from the other team on board now. They're all kind of working together on this guy, and the conclusion is like, all right, we we, we got to go back. Like we got to go back to a major fob. So we we take them to another one that's a little closer than Bastion, where we come up, drop them off, and uh, you know they're they're pretty certain he's not going to make it at this point. You know, because I mean, once you start CPR, it's your chances of bringing the person back are extremely limited, you know, in the best of circumstances. And, uh, well, we come to find out, like, after we got back, we're like, what the fuck was that? Like, what were we trying to do there? So apparently, the guy had been worked on at the hospital, like, they knew he wasn't going to make it. Um, and they were sending him back so he could basically die with his family. But nobody told us that. Huh. So, you know, we're, you know, jumping through our own asshole to try to like save this guy. And the, the whole point was just to get him back to his family, you know, but uh-huh. no one ever like that never got communicated to us. Uh, you know, another situation where um, we'd picked up this uh, little girl that had been uh, caught in a roadside bomb, a little seven year old girl and, uh, you know, burns over probably 50% of her body at this point. And uh, the rules are, you know, for the Afghans, you got to take them to the Afghan hospital. Uh, which, you know, if you talk to our flight docs or our pararescue team, like for a serious trauma case, if you're bringing them to the Afghan hospital, you're killing them. Mm. Like there is no chance of them like making it through uh, at the Afghan hospital because they just they don't have the equipment. They don't have the technology like that. A quote unquote doctor on the Afghan side is probably the equivalent of an EMT basic on the American side. Wow. You know, and uh, so we'd, uh, you know, we had this girl in the back and the Jays were like, if, if we don't get her to the American hospital, she's dead. Hmm. You know? And we knew cause you know, we get the bed report every day that there literally wasn't a single patient in the American hospital. So it's not like we were taking bed space up. Mm-hmm. And so we decided like, fuck it. We're going to take her to the American hospital. 
And so, you know, we kind of broke the regs on that, dropped her off there. Um, you know, the med group commander threw a fit about it. I mean, thankfully, at the end of the day, our commander covered for us. But like, you know, again, sort of those things are like, man, like, th- things are not as like golden here as like, you know, you would like to hope a lot of ways. And like, because, you know, again, you, you're talking about people's lives here, but you have these administrative procedures that are just, you know, getting in the way. And, and I understand it's the military is a large organization. Like, you, you have to have those. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it's a bureaucracy. Like, you can't function without them. But at the same time, just, you know, from the line perspective, it just gets extremely frustrating. Um, and then, you know, it was like, I went on with my career. Um, like I, I realized sort of that busy deployment was the exception to the rule mm-hmm. and that most of our deployments were like the first one where you're just sitting around basically just waiting for something that's never going to happen. Um, air force rescue, uh, because we're, we're kind of specialized, like our whole like reason for existence is, Guy gets uh, shot down, like fighter pilot gets shot down, punches out behind bad guy territory. We're supposed to fight our way in, grab the guy, fight our way back out again. That's why we have the, you know, 50 caliber machine guns and the mini guns as opposed to the Red Cross, because uh, we are not a non-combatant uh, at that point. But the problem is, like, when that's your whole mission, when, when's the last time that happened? Like, when's the last time a, a fighter pilot got shot down behind enemy territory? Like, yeah. it's, it's pretty rare. And so, and the problem is with the Air Force leadership, um, you know, you, you get into this mindset of um, basically assuming zero risk because, and I, I can only speak for the Air Force, I don't know how it goes in other services, but uh, the Air Force is an extremely risk averse culture. Um, and the way you get promoted is by not taking risk effectively. Because they, they tell you, you know, oh, it's not a one-mistake Air Force. It's not a one-mistake Air Force. On the officer side, it's a one-mistake Air Force. Like, if you screw something up, you're not getting booted out, but your promotion potential is getting cut off right there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. And you know by the time you're a mid-level captain if you're going to make it up the chain, like, or not. And the vast majority of us aren't. But because of the way the system works, you still have to play it, like, basically pretend like you want to get promoted and everything mm-hmm. like that, even though the majority of us don't really want to. But the problem is the people that do get promoted are the ones that got there by not taking risks Mm. because the less risk you assume, the more likely it is you're not going to have a black mark on your record, the more likely it is you're going to make it up the next to the next chain of command. And so the higher you go, almost the more risk averse you had to be to get there. And, and there are exceptions to every rule, and I'm, I'm sure you'll get comments of, like, oh, I was in the Air Force, and my wing co- commander was amazing. I, I, I got it. Like, they, they, they're good. There are good ones out there, but I would say, like, on the whole, it's ex- extremely risk-averse. And so what you'll get is, you know, you'll get to these deployed environments, and the sort of um, whoever is sort of overseeing you is usually, you know, an Air Force 06 uh, colonel, and they're looking at it as, well, okay, I could release my CSAR combat search and rescue guys out to go do something, but then they might get shot down. And if they get shot down, then it's going to come back on me of why did you let them go do something? Mm. So they're very, they're loath to release you to go do things like that. And, um, you know, it also turns into, you know, sort of like your, the similar situations where, you know, they, they, look at this or risk aspect of, well, what if I go release these guys, go do this mission, and then a fighter pilot ejects? And then they're going to be off doing this, and I'm not going to have them to, like, do that. Well, mm-hmm. again, has not happened <laughs> for decades, but you are holding us here and not letting us do anything on the off chance that this is going to happen. 
Um, and, you know, the, the last time it did happen, actually, was, you know, a couple of F-15 guys punched out in Libya, and they got picked up by the Marines. Mm-hmm. Like, there, there are other assets that can go do this. It's not like, you know, if we aren't sitting there, like, somebody else is going to, is, isn't going to get them, and they're just going to starve to death or something, or get rolled up. Like, there are other people that can go do this stuff, but it's this just risk-averse culture that kind of just hamstrings you and keeps you stuck there, uh, which was very frustrating for me and, you know, was sort of one of the uh, reasons I'm out now, uh, sort of out. You know, I'm still, like, on the reserve side, so, again, hopefully none of this comes back to uh, bite me later. Uh, <laughs> but at least I'm not on reserve duty right now, so I don't think technically they can uh, they can get me for it. But, um, you know, that, w- that was sort of one of the driving factors eventually for me getting out is I just felt like I wasn't doing anything. And, you know, I realized, again, like, in a lot of ways, I got more job satisfaction of, uh, you know, doing that volunteer fire rescue stuff. Cause at least like, even if you were rolling out to like a, you know, bullshit smoke alarm call or something like that, at least you were doing something mm-hmm. like, you know, you weren't just sitting around in the station, uh, you know, listening to calls go out, but just not going on them, you know, which was kind of the, uh, and eventually I just got very fed up with it. I got very fed up with sort of the, Air Force leadership culture, the, um, the sort of a lot of these sort of aspects of the military uh, sort of in general, um, you know, especially as a pilot, it's uh, the Air Force cares much more about how you perform with your additional duties. Uh, you know, they don't really care, like, you know, if you're an awesome instructor pilot or evaluator pilot, did, did you plan the Christmas party? Hmm. Well, somebody else planned the Christmas party. You could have done that. So, <laughs> you know, and that all, that all got very frustrating to me, um, which lead me to get out. And at least so far with my new gig, I'm, I'm enjoying it a lot more, finding a lot more action oriented and uh, that sort of thing. But um, I guess that puts me in this sort of veteran status now, which, you know, especially not coming from a military household and everything, it's kind of a weird thing for me. And um, I don't know, I have sort of thoughts about the the veteran community i guess i mean in some ways i mean it's it's a great community you meet some awesome people in it um you know i mean i they made some you know obviously lifelong friends from the job and like you know other veterans and stuff like that i've met some really great ones and then uh, there's some there's some problems with the veterans community though too i think uh and uh, i don't I, th- I think a lot of people especially because we've gotten to this sort of weird part in the country where like we can't even really discuss those kind of issues because uh, you know we, we there's such a divide now between the you know civilian population and the military population uh, because you have like these sort of you know military families that I was talking about so you have people that grew up in military families on military bases went into the military did their whole careers in the military um, that you know never really experienced civilian life and then on the flip side you have civilians that have never met anyone in the military mm-hmm. uh, or, you know, very few people in the military. And so there's sort of a gap in understanding on, uh, on both sides, which I, I think becomes kind of problematic, you know, first of all, because it means civilians don't always understand veterans issues, but then also in some ways, I think it leads to veterans not really understanding civilian issues. Um, and, you know, and because you kind of get this sort of like, I think people feel guilty about, you know, not being associated with or not understanding the military. And so they kind of overcompensate with the, like, thank you for your service kind of mentality and that kind of surface stuff. And, you know, if you spend your entire life where everywhere you go, everyone's telling you how awesome you are and thanking you for it, at a certain point, that starts to sink in. Hmm. And you're like, 
well, no, I am awesome and I am different and, you know, I am kind of better, you know, and I think that can be problematic. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, you know, <laughs> veterans shouldn't be proud of their service. Uh, like, absolutely, you should be. But at the same time, like, I, I think people need to be careful of um, assuming it sort of in and of itself makes you sort of better or superior, uh, you know. It's just little things like you'll see, you know, I see on Facebook people post all the time like I'm a veteran. So people don't understand my dark sense of humor because veterans are the only people in the world that have dark senses of humor. Like I was, you know, spent a brief period of time in the uh, stand up comedy scene doing that for a little bit. And let me tell you, there are plenty of people out there with some sick, dark, twisted senses of humor that never served in the military. But a lot of people like you don't experience that, you know, if you sort of spend your entire life sort of like insulated in that. And, um, you know, like, uh, we talked about this, uh, offline here with the, uh, when you had the Parkland shooting and you had that, uh, local cop where, you know, he didn't go in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, he got like a lot of grief for that, which I mean, at the end of the day, probably deservedly so man, like you got one job, but, yeah. uh, at the same time, I saw a lot of my veteran friends posting like, oh, I would have got in there. Like I would have kicked that door in and I would have saved all those kids and he's a coward and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, Man, you were in finance. Like, maybe you would have, but you don't know how you would have reacted in that situation. Like, you don't know. Like, you know, and until you're in that situation, you have no idea. But people sort of, again, I think because they've, you know, been sort of told the whole time how special they are, sort of assume that, well, no, just because I went through, like, I am a veteran, so automatically I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, man. Like, and it doesn't it doesn't give you a pass on the rest of your life, man. Like you, you still got to go out there. And I, th- I think that's sort of, you know, a problematic uh, sort of cultural thing where especially with, um, you know, when you, when you look at it, like let's say you do a 20 year career, like you do a full 20 year career. You still had, you know, probably 18 years before that. And hopefully you got 40 years after that. Like you can't just be a veteran, for that time and like the military at the end of the day is only a small portion of your life and um you know i think that's with like with anything like you can't let one aspect of your life just define the whole life and i, I feel like i do tend to kind of see that especially sometimes in the veteran community i mean not just the veteran community like um so like you know i've i've done like the crossfit thing before and like mm-hmm. you have people there where their whole life is crossfit like yeah. I went on this date with this one girl there who went to the same CrossFit gym I I did. And that's all she talked about the entire time was just CrossFit, CrossFit, CrossFit. And people at CrossFit and eating like meals that are good for CrossFit and different CrossFit workouts. And like every time I tried to steer the conversation somewhere else, just back to CrossFit. Like, no, you can't just have your entire life be wrapped around that one thing. And I think a lot of people in the veteran community, and this is sort of I think leads to problems transitioning back to civilian life because you completely are wrapped around the axle on this one aspect of your life. And now that's gone. Hmm. And you know, there are so many other things out there to try and do. And like, if you just hold on to that, like veteran thing is your one key identifying feature. Like it really just, I think it really kind of holds you back. Hmm. And again, not saying it's, it's a bad thing, uh, you know, to be a veteran and certainly it's something to be proud of, but like, you can't just completely rely on that. You know, man, like there has to be other aspects to your life. And, uh, I I think that's sort of one of the most helpful things in reintegration and, you know, especially moving on past the military is sort of realizing that your life 
goes on and other things can have meaning and you can find, you know, purpose in other things, you know, and whatever that sort of thing that, you know, you really had in the military, like there are other places you could find that, you know. Now, I understand specifically, you know, people to get wounded or disabled, like that, that becomes much more problematic because you might not be able to like, like those things if like, you know, sort of like kicking indoors was your thing. And now like you, you got blown up and you can't do that anymore. That I, I totally understand like where that, but that doesn't mean, you know, there's not other things out there for you. Mm. And I think like it just, it's really, you know, helpful to just try to move on past that, you know, identity. And especially because at the end of the day, man, like, the military and the government are only going to take care of you so much. Like you have mm-hmm. got to be able to go out and move beyond that because at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, you got your VA benefits, you know, you got your retirement benefits if you retired, but at the end of the day, the military and the government are just big sprawling bureaucracies and they don't really give a shit about you, mm-hmm. nor in some ways should they, you know, like, you know, they're, it's a giant sprawling bureaucracy. It can't give individual attention uh, to people, you know, and that that's where like, you kind of have to, again, sort of make your own path past that, I think. And um, I, I think, you know, there are a lot of great programs for that, but I, I think it's it's also just important to try to move past, like, that singular identity that a lot of people have. Um, you know, I, I will, uh, I mean, like I said, there are some great uh, programs out there. I would like to just talk briefly about one that I'm kind of involved with, uh, like, because I, I, I think it's worth plugging on there. Hopefully you don't mind. No, please. Um, it's a, so it's a program called uh, Midnight Sun Service Dogs. And um, it, we, we kind of got introduced to it in my uh, previous unit where uh, we we're on deployment uh, to Afghanistan. And uh, it was one of those things where, again, we weren't, it was sort of later on in the war. So we went back to having nothing to do again. And uh, our pararescue team, though, came from a different base because for whatever reason, they never match up the pararescue teams and the air crew. They're always from separate bases because, you know, God forbid we just bring everybody over on the same plane. We have to have one coming from Alaska and one coming from Florida and, you know, meet in the middle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyways, the, the PJs get off the boat and they have this lab with them. And we're like, what? what? Why? And like, is this like a, you know, working dog or something? I'm like, no service dog and so uh they had this and they told us about this it's this program uh and they told us oh it's this great program uh, midnight sun service dogs and uh this woman uh, april that runs it uh, she trains these dogs to basically be full full up service dogs i mean you're talking thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of training and then th- she donates them to combat units and veterans that need them and, uh, like specifically, like they, they are trained in a ton of different aspects of being service animals, but sort of one of the primary things they're trained to deal with is PTSD. Uh, they can identify, um, when you're having an attack, they can do all kinds of things to sort of bring you out of that. They're trained to sort of steer you away from situations that they feel might be, you know, trigger you or anything like that. And, uh, you know, these dogs just do absolutely incredible things. And again, the, she, the, they'll donate them to combat units and they'll donate them to, uh, you know, veterans that are having, you know, PTSD issues. And I mean, you know, for people that, you know, really were in like the worst of it and are having, um, you know, problems with this sort of thing, like I can't recommend this program enough. Um, you know, I, I won't use any names for this kind of stuff, but, uh, we were told a story through the program of this person that they were having uh, suicidal thoughts. And to the point where they basically locked themselves in a closet and were going to kill themselves. And their dog actually basically bit and clawed its way through the closet door wow. to get to them and like pull them out of it. And then, you know, they looked at the dog there and they're like, I, I can't do this. 
Wow. You know, and that was all it took to snap them out of it at that point. Like, cause they, and you know, had that dog been there hundred percent, they would have done it, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, it's a, these dogs just do incredible things. And apparently the, uh, it's an all volunteer program. They do, um, all of the, uh, you know, training for these dogs again, like thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars of, uh, training there. Uh, April, the woman that's in charge of it actually, uh, like she was trained by Caesar Milan, like the dog whisperer uh-huh. and stuff. So she really knows what she's doing with these dogs to the point where, you know, it, it's incredible where you'll be working with a dog and she'll be like, Oh, well, um, you know, the dog's doing this because of this. And you're like, what? Oh, I, I, I thought it was just kind of happy to see me, <laughs> you know, and like, there's just so much more to it than that. Um, so yeah, my squadron, uh, when I was in Florida, we had one of the dogs trained up for us, uh, because unfortunately we did have a, uh, a suicide at the unit there. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we like having a dog there that can identify those symptoms. Cause that's one of the things they can do is, you know, like identify like, like, Hey, you're, you're having these, this, you're having these issues right now. And like where you may not even realize it yourself, but you know, it causes you to like stop and like sort of take stock of yourself and like, man, am I okay? You know, I don't know. And so it can be just really helpful with that. And, uh, she also did a phenomenal dog job just uh, training uh, me with my own dog. Uh, we're working her up to be a therapy dog to, uh, you know, basically go visit like hospitals and, you know, hospices and that kind of stuff. Uh, she does a ton of work uh, with, through the therapy dog. She works with the uh, Chris Kyle Center up in uh, Alaska for Wounded Warriors and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, they do... Um, a lot of programs like this one they do call a positive reading where basically the veteran will take the dog and sort of read to local kids through the dog basically like the dog is you know quote unquote reading for them and just these things that can you know just get your mind off things and like sort of get you back into like serving the community and everything like that and just anyways there's just so many cool aspects to the program so I definitely uh, can't um, can't recommend it enough there. Again, it's Midnight Sun Service Dogs, and they're always looking for volunteers. They're based out of Alaska. They're always looking for donations, uh, anything like that. Just a really great veterans program. Um, and, yeah, man, that's, I don't know. That's uh, about all I got unless uh, I got questions or anything there. Well, I think that was that was all really interesting. You're talking about uh making sure that the military your service time isn't just your your complete and sole identity i saw that and see that so much with fighters where that's who they are that's what they do and they reach the stopping point where everybody knows they should be done they should look back on this great career but they can't leave that world behind so they stay in too long and then everybody says man he was a great fighter back then Man, I wish he would stop now. And when I quit fighting, I wanted it to be on my terms. I wanted everybody to say, well, we wish you would keep fighting, as opposed to, we're so glad you stopped now. Uh, What were the things, and and for myself, as I looked at my fighting career, I knew this is very finite. And there's no set, well, I'm I'm just going to do four years as a fighter, or two years, or six years, or I'm going to retire after 20 years as a fighter. You may have one bad fight and your career is over. It could have lasted one night. Or in my case, uh, once I quit my job at 30 and my last fight was at 38. So I was a full-time fighter there for eight years, had the ups and downs with it. But during that entire time, I knew this career is going to end at some point. I can either wait till it chews me up and spits me out 
or I can start developing things so when I choose to leave, I won't have to go back into a life of, of working in jobs that I didn't want to do. I wouldn't have to stay fighting just for the money, just to get by. What was it that you kind of felt like you were doing was preparing you for your eventual exit? And although you're still in the reserves, you seem like you're you're moving on in different pathways. You're using what you built to build even further. How'd you do that? Uh, well, I mean, again, it kind of sort of it's you, you get out of it what you put into it uh, kind of cliche. But um, for me, especially, I think there, there are aspects of military service, which I think definitely can help you out. Uh, some can you know hurt you in some ways, but like some can help you, uh, especially like time management, uh, I think is really big. Um, you know, just learning at like, hey, like if you're not, you know, if you're not early, you're late kind of mentality uh, that like Additionally, uh, I think, I mean, just stress inoculation, um, especially with the uh, the kind of work I'm doing now, like just the ability to be under high stress situations and, um, you know, be like, oh, I've, I've been to similar kind of situations before. Like I've been yelled at, I've been in stressful situations, I've been shot at, like, okay, so I can just deal with this. Mm-hmm. And I, I think, you know, a lot of ways the military uh, for that stress inoculation is great. I think, uh, again, the time management and just the sort of learning to, you know, kind of get your shit together for lack of a better word. I mean, you know, it's, again, it's kind of a cliche, but you know, you, all the people are like, oh, you know, I was a mess and then I got in the military and that kind of straightened me out. And so I think, you know, definitely, um, you know, it can be helpful in the, those kind of, um, mentalities again, like for me, it was sort of, uh, the, again, the, the stress, the combat portion that kind of translated over to, uh, working well with my new job, but obviously, you know, experiences may vary. And so that's not going to be the same for everyone, but I think at the very least sort of the, you know, the initial stress of like going through the basic training environment, the learning to be on time, learning the self-discipline, you know, you know, certain, like even the grooming standards and stuff like that, which are seem ridiculous. And we all, you know, as soon as you get out, just drop kick them, but at least just having to go that for a little bit and like getting that self-discipline. I don't think you necessarily need the military for that, but you need something that does that to you. And so is that discipline. Like, you know, if you go through, you know, firefighter, police, EMS, uh, like anything like that, will do the same thing. You know, obviously fighting is huge for that. I mean, you know, like the kind of discipline that you guys deal with in there, like there are plenty of people in the military, like myself included, that couldn't do that. <laughs> like, uh, you know, going through the training for my new gig, I got punched in the face a couple of times. I'm like, this this is awful. Like, I, I never <laughs> want this to happen again. Like, and as soon as we're done with this and somebody stops punching me in the face, that's going to be awesome. And like, <laughs> I, like the fact that you go do that voluntarily. And, you know, some people have that and some people don't. Like I have, I have a, a friend of mine that, uh, you know, you look at her, she's this tiny little blonde girl, right? She's a reservist, but, you know, not in, like, a combat capacity or anything like that. But she went through a couple of years as an MMA fighter mm. at the lower levels, and I, I couldn't tell you the names of the different – I don't even know the right terminology, so I'm not going to get into it. But, like, yeah, like, you know, she got in the got in the ring, you know, did a bunch of fights and stuff. And to me, like, that's a just mind-blowing level of discipline. I'm like, I don't think I have that. Like, no, that, that's – that sounds awful. <laughs> like, and you couldn't pay me enough. Uh, so wait a minute here, because <clears throat> so so you've been a chopper pilot. You've you've flown the fighter jets and all that. It seems to me that that takes a ridiculous amount of discipline to learn everything. Because and and I I know so little about fighting, but like when I see the old World War II uh, fighter planes and things like that. 
everything there kind of looks like it would be reasonable and make sense. And then you look at these these current jets and these choppers and there's buttons everywhere that just seem so ridiculously confusing. You have to know everything. And I was talking to our, our buddy Frank and asked him, because was I watching? I, I think I was watching a Star Wars and they showed a lot of uh, women pilots. And I asked him, is there anyone better at any size of person, any uh, sex of person that would be a better pilot? And he actually said, women are generally better suited in a lot of cases because they're smaller. The G-forces don't affect them as well. And then he starts talking about how it used to be just these macho, brawny fighter pilot guys. And now it's really, you have to know so much math and so much particulars that it's so much more cerebral than it ever was. So I think the discipline and learning all of that is amazing to me because if somebody sat me down a book that I'm sure you've read to learn how to hover in a certain weather condition, I would just say, just just kick me out the door. We're, we're going down. I, I can't learn this. So tell me about the discipline it takes to learn all of those things. Oh, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And yeah, like, you know, physically you can be, you know, very out of shape and still, you know, end up being a great pilot. Um, I mean, to an extent, like obviously, especially in combat rescue, there's the aspect of, you know, helicopters have the uh, capacity to become, you know, what they call instant infantry, mm. where now we're on the ground and you're climbing out of the helicopter and you be, better be able to hustle with the rifle and the armor on and everything like that. But uh, in general, yeah, it's much more of a sort of, like I guess you say, cerebral kind of, um, you know, fine motor skills kind of thing. And uh, it's like anything else, though, like you, you just you take it in stages. Like it's, you know, I'm sure with fighting, like, you know, they just don't throw you in the, the octagon with Brock Lesnar, be like, all right, figure it out, man. <laughs> like, you know, and like as you're, you know, getting your head shoved up through, you know, through the ropes, everything like, well, this, this is awful, you know, but it's same with us. Like they don't just throw you in and like go for it. So it's everything gets taken in stages where, um, you know, like the first day, you know, I sat in a 60 cockpit and which was, you know, you know, vastly uh, more complex than a Huey. Uh, the Huey actually takes a lot more like hands-on kind of flying because the 60s more fly-by-wire, but there's just so many more systems involved with the 60, especially with the tactical systems. And you know, I'm just looking around, I'm like, I, I'm never going to be able to figure out what all of these do. But you just take everyone sort of in stages. And so, you know, pilot training is very much like broken into, you know, okay, so you're going to start off with the academic stage and we're going to teach you the very basics. Then you're going to go out and you're going to fly your contact flights, and you're just going to learn how to, you know, take off, land, do all that kind of stuff. Okay, then you're kind of come back and do more academics. Now you're going to go out and do the more, like, aerobatic stuff, you know, and then you're going to come back and more academics, then you're going to go out and do instruments and do instrument flying in the weather and stuff like that. And so it's all sort of just broken down into, like, uh, you know, smaller chunks, basically. Um, and obviously, I mean, yeah, the, there's a lot of studying. You spend a ton of time in the books. Um, you know, it's... Uh, you know, a lot of like, especially in initial pilot training where, uh, you know, they'll, they'll stand you up in front of the entire class and throw various emergency procedures at you and you have to talk your way through it and recite the bold face, uh, which are, are like emergency action items from memory. And they'll be asking you questions about like, oh, well, okay, so, you know, this oil pressure light came on. What uh, causes that? Where's the switch located for that? What's the pressure differential, which leads that to activate and you're up in front of everybody. So it's, you know, it's stressful, but uh, you know, again, I can't emphasize enough that nobody is punching you in the face while you're, <laughs> you're doing that, which sounds infinitely yep. Worse to me, but they may be shooting at you eventually. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, but uh, again, you know, experiences may vary. I found for me, uh, just 
you know, when we were engaged, like obviously I had, um, wasn't nearly as bad as other people in my career have had it, uh, career field have had it. And certainly nothing like, you know, being a Marine on the ground in Fallujah, I found like for us getting shot at was kind of more like, you know, you're cruising and there go the tracers like right by your window. You're like, Oh shit. Oh, okay. You know, kind of like, uh, like very similar experience for me. And again, you know, can't emphasize enough experiences may vary for this, but for me it was very much like the, you know, kind of like if you're on the highway and like the semi starts merging into you and you go, Oh shit. And then it stops and you sort of go on with your day. Um, but that's cause at least for me, almost all the times that I got engaged, it was sort of in route. So, you know, we're cruising from point A to point B. Somebody, you know, runs out of a hut and starts wailing on us with an AK-47 then runs back in. And so it's kind of, it's there, it's gone. And, you know, uh, obviously, you know, other guys I know in the career field that, you know, have been engaged while, you know, picking people up either on the ground or in a hover, that becomes a much more, you know, dicey proposition, obviously a lot tougher to deal with. I was just lucky in that, you know, I never had to have that experience particularly. Hmm. So you told me to go ahead and ask you questions uh, to keep the conversation going. Uh, so just want to make sure everyone knows that I, I've been given that permission. Of course, uh, Devin chooses the line. It's it's what you want to answer and not. But I, I, I'm so, so intrigued by just PTSD in and of itself and how we're all just completely different people. We, we deal with things differently. Uh, you may see a, a homeless veteran who's had who knows what, a TBI, some kind of trauma, and then exacerbated it with drug and alcohol use, or, or who knows what the cause is. Is that something that you've ever had to deal with with your experiences? And again, I hope I'm not overstepping my boundaries. Uh, no, I mean, um, so for me, um, I mean, hopefully I don't come off sounding like an asshole for this, but it's it just at least personally, I've just never found things really sat with me. Uh, again, like there are so many people that have been through like so much worse in the military and, and even out of the military. Um, yeah, it just kind of reminds me, uh, I have, uh, a friend, I guess I, I won't use any of course names or anything like this, but her sister had somebody she knew basically blow their own head off and like bleed out in her arms and mm. n not military, not nothing, anything like that. Mm. But you know, that is so much more traumatic than anything I've had to deal with in the military. And she actually got told by a family member like, Oh, you can't have PTSD. You're not in the military. <laughs> like it's, it's irrelevant. Like, you know, yeah. you can, you know, go through the military and have nothing you know happen to you, or you can be not in the military and have horrible things uh, happen to you. And it's, yeah. you know, and we all process stuff differently. Like, as I said earlier, you know, experiences may be very, may vary. So, you know, things that don't affect me may affect somebody else much worse and vice versa. Something that affects me may not affect somebody else. Um, like, I don't know. I've just very, I've always just kind of compartmentalized things and maybe that'll come back to bite me down the road and I'll come crashing down at some point. But, uh, you know, I, I, I know I feel weird about it, but I had a buddy once ask me like, you know, don't you just stay up at night, like thinking about the things we did and the stuff we were involved in. And I was like, not really, no. Hmm. Like, and, you know, and I, I feel like, though, in a lot of ways, like, I've, you know, I've, I've been fortunate that I, I haven't had, you know, anything uh, too too bad happen directly to me. I mean, like, I've been around it. Uh, you know, our, you know, situations, like, I remember once we uh, landed, picked up an Afghan guy, and, like, we're loading him on the helicopter and, uh, on, and on night vision goggles, and I'm looking through, I'm like, man, why... 
why are we putting a kid on? Like that's I thought we were I thought we were picking up like uh, ANA police, like or Afghan National Army. Like why? What's, oh, that's just half a guy. Oh, that that's not a kid. That's just a torso, basically. And the guy he was actually still alive when the, the Jays got him on the helicopter. And so we start racing back to base, and about like two minutes later, they're like, "You can slow down." Mm. Like he's gone. It's not coming back. You know, um, I've unfortunately, you know, lost a lot of friends through, you know, multiple crashes, um, at, uh, multiple different units I've been assigned to, uh, you know, but it, again, it didn't happen, you know, in front of me. Uh, so, you know, obviously I, I think about it a lot, but, you know, for me personally, while it's, you know, it, it's, it was tough, you know, especially at the time, you know, just so much worse for the families directly involved and for the people that were there during the crash and everything like that crashes. Um, so I, I think, you know, I've been like adjacent to a lot of stuff, you know, I said that, you know, picked up people who had bad stuff happen to them, been engaged, but not like, you know, really engaged, like, you know, somebody on the ground or other people uh, in my community, uh, you know, again, like lost a lot of friends doing it, but, you know, wasn't sort of there when it happened. So I think honestly, personally, I've just really been lucky in that, uh, you know, that I've been spared the worst of it over mm-hmm. my career really. And, uh, you know, so certainly, you know, people who've, you know, seen much, much worse, done much worse, or, you know, especially had like TBI and stuff like that. You've talked about like that can be much, much more difficult, uh, to recover from. And, you know, that's where I think a lot of the programs, like especially like the the ones we were talking about earlier, can come into play there. I've, I've just, again, I've just really been lucky with, you know, kind of been spared the worst of it. Hmm. Well, I think it's important to point out that you're, you're, you keep repeating the phrase, experiences may vary, that you're not belittling anyone else for having gone through those things, but you're very good yourself at compartmentalizing things. And from the veterans that I've spoken to that have, dealt with PTSD uh, and maybe uh, you know what they say if you're an alcoholic you're always in recovery so I don't know if you could say someone got over their PTSD but so much of it was just kind of accepting oh why am I alive and my buddy died well it is what it is that's just the way things go sometimes and going through therapy myself for a few times for my childhood and things that I've dealt with a lot of it just came down to just accepting it yeah that really sucked but this is just kind of the way things are and this is the way the world works and I'm alive and they're not or this happened to me and not them just because that's just how it is. Yeah, actually, um, that brings up uh, another thing, um, another program actually. Um, So after my unit had that uh, suicide that I talked about uh, earlier, um, we brought in uh, this woman, Dr. Elk, who uh, runs a veterans PTSD program. I don't know if you're familiar with her, uh, her work at all, but... uh, her sort of theory that she operates under um, is that a lot of difficulty that people have dealing with PTSD is because because of how traumatic the event was, your brain sort of processes and stores the information incorrectly hmm. uh, in that it, it stores it differently than it would um, like a normal memory. Uh, and so she sort of has this process that she came and you know, I, again, I think if you talk to anybody at the unit that dealt with her, um, like it's surprisingly effective of sort of teaching you to reprocess the information uh, by sort of going back through it and sort of reordering it in your brain. Uh, obviously, you know, for the worst of the worst, uh, you know, it's it's not going to cure you overnight or anything like that. But we all found it very helpful. Like uh, I think we all kind of went into it with the attitude of like, okay, sure. 
yeah, like, okay, you're going to talk to me, do this weird, like, little therapy thing. Yeah, okay, this is going to help. Yeah, right, gotcha. And get on with my day, you know. Um, and I went through it, and I talked to her about something which, yeah, like, I don't even really want to get into it because it was stupid and, like, it wasn't even really a traumatic experience. It was just something that was kind of weighing on me at the time. And she went through this whole process with it. And I was all ready to basically lie to her at the end of it and be like, oh, no, I feel much better now. Thank you. <laughs> like, And then I kind of realized I actually did feel better. Mm. And I, I don't know. Like, I mean, it just to me and I think to everybody else that went in there, uh, like it just really seemed like just, again, reordering and reprocessing that experience really did kind of help. Um and again, yeah, Dr. Elka, the Elk Institute, and yeah, can't recommend that program enough either. Um, I, I can't, I, I'm sure like, you know, especially when you start getting into the TBI stuff, you know, that that's going to take a lot more than that. But for some stuff, I think it can definitely be helpful. Um, you know, I, I won't even try to get into the name of the process or how it works or anything like that, because I'm just going to fuck it up if I try and I don't want to give bad information out. But yeah, I think for me at least, uh, and she works, ve- you know, pretty much exclusively with uh, combat veterans. And so, uh, you know, she, she's actually gone to a couple different rescue units uh, after crashes and after, you know, serious events like that to go help them. And I, mm-hmm. I, I've never met anyone that has a bad thing to say about the, the treatment or the program or anything like that. Huh. I'm pretty excited right now that uh, it seems like the laws are kind of slacking. They're allowing doctors to start experimenting with, uh, different forms of treatment, whether it be through mushrooms or ayahuasca. I think even MDMA has been discussed to helping people cope with their PTSD or even their TBI. I I was watching a special one time, Lisa Ling, I think is her name, reporter goes down to South America to visit an ayahuasca ceremony. And it was specifically for veterans with PTSD. And there were veterans there from Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam. And she walked up to one Vietnam veteran and said, I'm curious about your experiences. Why are you here? And the Vietnam vet just stood up and goes, fuck you. I'm not here to talk to any goddamn reporters and stormed off into the jungle. She comes back the next day after the ceremony had been completed and said, I I hope you don't mind. Do I ask you about your experience? And the same Vietnam veteran sat there and looked at her and smiled and said, I'm so sorry about yesterday. I was just in a bad spot. And now I understand so much more of what's going on in my life. And I've grown. And it's such an interesting thing because... It's it's always told if we see somebody with a cast on their arm, we don't say, what a bitch. Why isn't he over there curling 200 pounds? But somebody that has had uh, you know, a different hormone production in their, their brain, I know with concussions, that, that causes changes in the brain for hormones, as we mentioned, TBI, all of these things. And, and even those pathways, you have something dramatic happen to you. You see someone get bit by a dog when they're five years old, terrified of dogs the rest of their life. These things have these impacts on our brains. And I think through therapy and through the new things that they're kind of looking at with these other treatments, I think it's exciting to see where it all goes. Uh, absolutely. And, um, you know, we, we won't get into what my current job is right now, but uh, you perhaps like wouldn't think that I'd be very supportive of those kind of treatments and stuff like that. Uh, but the reality is I, I think it's great. And I think, you know, the more we can uh, get into that kind of stuff, the better. And I, I think, you know, it's really important to like really with this stuff to take the gloves off and allow like research into, you know, especially like these, like, you know, I'm, I'm not really personally big into like the whole like meditation kind of, you know, stuff like that, but, uh, or, you know, spiritual, like herbal or anything like that. 
but that doesn't mean it doesn't work and it doesn't mean we should try it out and experiment with it and you know allow studies to be done on it, especially with some of these stuff like you know you were talking about uh, you know the ayahuasca stuff or you know CBD or you know even just actual marijuana or like uh, MDMA and stuff like that by all means like we should be able to test it like maybe, maybe it doesn't work but maybe it does and you know if there's you you can put out like actual data like hey I think because X Y and Z this could be really helpful like by all means to try it out you know like, and if it works for a small subset of this population, because, you know, again, you know, what works for one person isn't going to work for another person necessarily. But I think, you know, we should be allowing, you know, as much research as possible and, you know, and, you know, let people go down the rabbit holes on that and try it out. Because, again, you know, it's like you don't know what you don't know. So until we start experimenting with stuff like maybe, you know, there is a, you know, really one size fits all kind of cure out there. We just haven't found it yet. Um, I think the reality is, you know. There's a lot of things that will have varying level of effectiveness for different people. And, you know, what might work for you won't work for me and vice versa. But you don't know that until, you know, the research gets done. So, yeah, I think, you know, the I fully support, you know, just loosening the rules around, like, at least, you know, controlled scientific studies on this mm -hmm. stuff. And, like, you know, because if it can help, we should do it, you know. And, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's tough because, again, the, the bureaucratic, you know, momentum of government can be very difficult to change stuff but i think we are sort of starting to see sort of the you know things start to kind of push in that direction now where like the momentum is starting to get uh you're like okay hey maybe we we can experiment with some of this stuff and research it without the wheels completely coming off the bus yeah uh, one of our sponsors for this show, and I'm going to throw in a shameless plug here myself, is Receptor, ReceptorNaturals.com. This is a CBD I started taking last year, uh, I think around March. And through, I've had eight surgeries. I've got uh, uh, spinal degeneration. My, my discs in my lower back are collapsing. So I was on a really high level of Oxycontin every day, 120 milligrams. And every month I'd go into my, my pain doctor to get my prescription. And every month he'd say, we need to reduce this, this level of medications. And I'd go, I, it's barely working as is. I, I can't do this. And then I started taking the CBD. And within just a few months, I went down to zero. So now I'm, I, I went from 120 milligrams a day of Oxycontin down to zero, which then not only because I was feeling better then allowed me to start training again, living my better life. And I think just a few years ago, that would not have been possible for me. That, that medication, which does not get me high, has no benefits other than making me feel better, was completely illegal. And that kind of stuff just blows my mind in this country where we're so free, so many things are restricted. So I'm right there with you that uh, responsible usage and letting the doctors do what they do and kind of open these doors for us. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, and unfortunately, sorry, it goes back to the momentum thing. Uh, I think we're finally starting to see some loosening of that, uh, like you mentioned, you know, specifically CBD. I think a lot of that used to be, unless I'm mistaken, a Schedule One, still is, which yeah. uh, you know puts it at the same level as basically heroin and PCP, and like e even crack cocaine is Schedule Two. You know, <laughs> uh, so it's 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 a kind of insanity, and it's just again, it's momentum because. Going back to sort of that risk-averse nature of a lot of people in military and government leadership, no one wants to be the one to change things. Mm -hmm. Because if you change things and, you know, like, so if, if I'm the guy, you know, that says we are going to deschedule this and all of a sudden it turns into this, you know, Dawn of the Dead style post-apocalyptic, you know, wasteland, mm -hmm. well, that, that's my fault now. Mm -hmm. And now I, I'm going to get blamed for that. So if I do nothing... 
I just stay in my position and I probably move on to the next one and just keep going on with my career. Mm. Whereas if I'm the guy to change it, I'm putting a lot of personal risk at that. Um, and so that, you know, it's, it's hard to overcome that sort of natural inclination in leadership to do nothing, yeah. you know, and I think we're finally starting to see it. And I think if I'm not mistaken, within the last year or two, they moved uh, the CBD extracts because, of course, it doesn't have the uh, hallucinogen in it. Uh, I believe that is now Schedule 3. If I'm not mistaken. I'm not sure, but I know that they can legally ship yeah. it through the United States now. Yeah, so I, I think it's at least moved down to Schedule 3, which, you know, I, I think it, it's a step in the right direction for yeah. that sort of stuff, at least. Uh, how's your relationship with your father now, with the, the military? Uh, you, you opened the door for me to ask questions. Yeah. So hey, I'm curious, if you don't mind sharing, why he was so negative on you joining the military and how he feels now that you've had what seems to be a, a good experience and, and doing well for yourself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, so uh, he actually, like, so after he retired from teaching, uh, he went to work as a, because uh, he always kind of wanted to be a computer programmer, right? Mm. And um, the only reason he got into teaching was during the Vietnam War, they weren't drafting teachers, and that is literally oh. the only reason he became a teacher. Uh, so obviously, you know, and, you know, so he had very negative experience or, you know, thoughts on the military, you know, growing up and, you know, having, you know, dodge the draft in Vietnam and everything like that. Obviously, he, you know, sort of grew up in that sort of baby killer mentality and everything like mm-hmm. that. So anyways, he retires from teaching and in the D.C. area as a computer programmer, especially an older one, you know, like in your 60s at that point for late 50s, I guess, at the time, like who's hiring computer programmers that are older in D.C.? Defense contractors, right? Hmm. So he goes to work for a defense contractor, um, which I don't know if you've ever seen the movie uh, SLC Punk. It's a oh. Matthew Lord. It's a movie about like the sort of punk rock scene in Salt Lake City, yeah. um, you know, back in the day. It's a good movie actually, and, it, and the guy has this uh, line where he's arguing with his dad, who's a lawyer now, and his dad's basically doing like, "Oh, you know, I used to be cool." He's like, "Oh yeah, you're a lawyer now," and the dad goes, "Well, I didn't sell out. I bought in," <laughs> you know, and like I kind of always think about that with my dad. But once he went to work for a defense contractor. Um, all of a sudden, having a son that's an Air Force pilot is kind of like bragging rights around the office. Mm. So, like, kind of overnight, he became a lot more curious about what I was doing and a lot more interested in it. Um, and, you know, maybe bad on me at this point. Now, I kind of didn't want to talk about it with them because I'm like, well, you didn't really care about it, like, all this time before. Now, all of a sudden, that it, like, it's kind of a cooler thing at your office. Now, now you want to you wanna hear about it? And mm. I wouldn't say we have a bad relationship it's just it's just kind of there Mm. you know it's not good it's not bad it's just kind of neutral um i will say like my life experience has just deviated so sharply from my parents that in a lot of ways it can be difficult for us to find things to talk about um you know mostly probably my fault just because you know I, i think for a lot of people, you, you, you go home to see your parents and you always kind of revert back to the younger version of you with them. And so you get, I get a little headstrong. And part of me also, it's like, man, I just don't feel like going into the 45 minutes of backstory with them. It's going to take to explain what I did last Thursday, hmm. you know, so it's much easier. How's everything going? Good. <laughs> How are things going here? Good. All right, good talk. You know, kind of, and so it's not bad. It's not good. I think he he's come to appreciate it more. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't say he gets it. Hmm. You know. 
Did you ever hear stories from your grandfathers about World War II, anything like that? Any history there? Uh, a little bit. So my uh, grandfather on my mom's side uh, died when I was very young, so I didn't really get to ask him many stories. And uh, my mom and my grandmother didn't really know, I guess, much of what he did. Uh, I, I believe he was uh, Army infantry, but I, I can't even say that with 100% certainty. Um I, I talked a decent amount with uh, my grandfather on my dad's side before he died about, uh, about it. Unfortunately, he died like before I went in, so I didn't really get any chance to talk to him afterwards. But uh, even though he was a, he was actually a doctor uh, during World War II, but served the entire time uh, as an army doctor stateside. Mm. Um, so you know he didn't really have any like sort of you know overseas deployment experiences or combat experience or anything like that. So you know he had interesting stories about army life, but not really you know like didn't really get into it. That kind of stuff. So again, like kind of like, you know, it just the military just was not a big thing in my family. Mm-hmm. And which, again, like kind of makes it hard to talk about it with them just because, you know, again, they just there's no background there. There's no experience. Huh. I, I just I find the whole world interesting because I'm such a curious person. I want to know other people's experiences. And to me, uh, like you said, me getting punched in the face seems very unusual to you, to me, that's just, yeah, you just show up to work and somebody punches you in the face. <laughs> I, I do find it really interesting um, when people aren't curious yeah. about other people's experience. Like, again, like we mentioned before, like on the whole, I don't like, like everybody, let's talk about me right now. You know, like that, that's not really who I am and I don't really like that. But then at the same time, like I find it very interesting when I meet people who just aren't curious at all. Like I remember um, a while ago I was at a party and, um, I was talking to a couple of girls there and they were lawyers and like, I can't even remember the type of law they did, but it was like incredibly uninteresting, mm. but still like I came up with like, you know, a bunch of follow-up questions, you know, <laughs> and stuff like that. And then they're like, what do you do? I'm like, Oh, I fly rescue helicopters to the air force. Okay. Mm. Like really, really like, like <laughs> I'm not saying it's the coolest thing in the world, but like, it's pretty cool. Maybe you, you find like one or two follow-up questions. Like I, I can't imagine everybody you meet in your life also flies rescue helicopters, but there's there's no curiosity in, in your mind at all, like no interest. At all. It's, it's always really odd to me when I meet somebody who doesn't have that kind of curiosity. Like, you know, yeah, for me, it's like the MMA thing. That's such a different world for me. You know, I have you know, tons of questions I can't even wrap my head around, like, <laughs> like you know, like the thought process and like the feeling of like uh, – you know, my, my friend that I said that uh, she went, you know, did all that stuff. And she was telling me about just like how terrified she was prior to getting into the ring. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, the thought, first thought that goes in my head is like, but, but you don't have to. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, if it's that terrifying, like, just don't. I don't know. But that's, you know, again, it's just a totally different mindset for me. So for me, like hearing those kind of stories is fascinating for me, you know. And so it's always very odd when I meet somebody who just doesn't have any curiosity for that, you know. One of our earlier podcasts was with a, a friend of mine, Dave Hagen, who served in the, the Army National Guard, I think it was. Uh, Dave, if you're listening to this, forgive me. I don't hold on to the details too much, too many punches to the head. But a big part of his deployment was going out there, getting shot at, trying to, to be that guy, the door kicker, this kind of stuff. All because in his first MMA fight, he got taken down. And was getting punched, and he tapped out due to punches. 
And so he said to himself his whole deployment, I will show that I'm not that scared guy that tapped out to punches by getting shot out here in the open type of thing. It's, it's such an interesting thing to see these worlds combine. And it's true MMA fighters don't have to get in the cage, but it's kind of a way to test ourselves. And I was at uh, God Bless Fort Benning. Uh, doing a meet and greet uh, there to su- support the troops, I guess, and sign autographs and things like that. And I got introduced to the crowd by the general there that was hosting. And it was kind of a funny thing because my mouth was full of food. I just got off a flight. He introduced me, so I stand up. I, I swallow my last bite, and I said, you know, in all honesty, I'm, I'm very honored to be here. I'm, I'm very thankful I get to meet everybody here. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Whether or not you think what you're doing is important or not or however you may look at things, but I'm an entertainer. I get in a cage. There's a doctor sitting ringside. You know, there, there is the element of death. It's very, very rare. Uh, the element of injury is fairly high, but death, at least in the short term, is very low. And I can tap out at any time. And there's, there's a, a referee right there in the cage to make sure that I don't get hurt too badly and I looked at the crowd and I said, these are the people that can't tap out. These are, in my mind, the ultimate fighters. And that's how I kind of view these things. So when you talked about it, and I hear this so often from, from veterans, well, I didn't really do that much. Look at these other guys. It always reminds me of Band of Brothers. Winters, I think Colonel Winters is what he ended up as. as at the end of the series, he says, you, do you remember what I told you? I was asked if I was a hero in World War II. And he said, no, but I served with a band of heroes and to have someone like that, who's just blatantly a hero say, no, no, it wasn't me. It was the people I was with to me. That's really kind of how I look at so many of the military people and the people that I talk to on the podcast and that we talk to to get onto the podcast. They always say, well, I didn't do that much. No, I was just there with a bunch of great guys. Well, regardless of what, whether you were in a, a fueling station, like my friend, uh, Tony Shuck, who did our podcast, or Dave Hagan, or my buddy Steve Cooper, guys that, that won, I th- think, the Silver Star, you were all part of this mechanism that did great things in one way or another. So when I say thank you for your service, that's kind of where I'm getting at. Whether you were a pencil pusher or a hard charger, a door kicker, it's all part of the team. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at the end, I, I still got to bring it back to, you know, and we're not getting the shit beat out of us while we're doing this, you know? And to me, it's just crazy. The fact that like, like I said, you, you can tap out so you can like, there's something to be said. Like if you have to go do something and you can't stop it, like, well then you just, you just have to go do it. Okay. But if you have the ability to stop it and you don't, like for me, I'd probably just get right, right in the ring, the bell would ring, like, cool, I tap, <laughs> you know, like, cause I could just stop this immediately. So I think, you know, there's an element of, you know, when you can't stop it, like in some ways that makes it easier because you, you just mm. have to go do it. Yeah. Like you don't have another choice. Like you just, you know, it's like you're in the helicopter. You can't just get out, you know, <laughs> you know, if, uh, you know, the dudes that are on the ground, like you can't just walk back to base, you know? And so you, you kind of just, you just do it because, well, that's what you're doing, you know? And like I said, because you don't have that ability to stop it. And I think, you know, in a lot of ways that can be a lot tougher when you, you can stop it at any point, but you just keep going, you know. But you weren't drafted. <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah. You volunteered to be in the military. And so when I hear about somebody buying your meal there and you're thinking, well, we just flew down here for lunch, 
It's the fact that you said, oh, okay, I'm going to sign on this line. And at some point I may be shot at, uh, my chopper may go down. I, I may be killed. I may be injured. I may see horrific things. So it's volunteering. And, and we have the all volunteer military for that reason. So people that are deciding this is something I'm willing to sacrifice my life for, whether it ever comes down to that or not, at the very least, you said you signed your name on the dotted line and said, yeah, I'll be there. Yeah. When, when it comes down to it. Absolutely. And, and I think in some ways that kind of gets to one of the problems I was sort of discussing earlier. And I uh, apologize if I'm repeating this because I can't remember if I actually got into it or not. But, you know, in when we were talking about World War II, where everybody went, and so everybody went, everybody came back and then just sort of got on with their lives. And everybody mm-hmm. kind of understood what it was and like, okay, cool. Now we're just as a country going to sort of get back into things mm-hmm. because almost the entire population, you know, a military age people like served in some capacity over there. Um, and man, someone I'm sure because it's the internet, somebody's fact checking me on this. Right? <laughs> Actually it was this percentage and Stephanie, you're going to get all kinds of, of hay mail for that. Uh, so I apologize yeah, for that in advance. But uh, you know, now because we do have that all volunteer force, uh, it, it becomes much more difficult again, because you have the one side on the civilian side where people don't really get it. And then you have on the military side where it's kind of an insulated community mm-hmm. And so it becomes much more difficult to just sort of reintegrate everybody back because the sort of like, I guess, kind of like me and my dad, where the experiences are just so different that it's kind of hard to just integrate it back together at the end of the day. And, you know, I think, you know, I'm not 100% saying we need to bring back the draft or anything like that, but I think there's, you know, that would go a long way to just sort of demystifying the experience for everybody, you know, and so you know, when everybody's gone and done it, okay, well now, now it's, you know, it's just a thing we all did and now we can reintegrate people and get back on with our lives and everything like that. Because I, and, you know, I think there are a lot of ways you could do it without, you know, bringing back a straight up draft. You know, a lot of people have talked about just, you know, doing like a year of national service, be that, you know, you could be nursing or military or, you know, teaching in the inner city, you know, like, you know, for, all the, you know, bitching I do about my dad being a teacher and stuff, I guarantee you that, like, there's, you know, teachers in, like, the inner cities that have way more difficult day-to-day life than, again, you know, a lot of us had day-to-day in the military at some point, you know. Hell, you're probably dodging more gunfire there than we were. Uh, so, you know, like, but if everyone kind of did that, like, sort of service thing, I don't know, just spitballing, but maybe that would, like, kind of ease the transition because everyone will have done it at that point. And it's, you know, it just sort of giving everybody that shared experience and again, kind of like I said, demystifying it. So, you know, everybody kind of has that sort of baseline understanding and the people coming back don't feel as alienated. And then the people who didn't go didn't feel like it's this mystical thing where like they can't even process what the person did, you know? Mm -hmm. I think that would be a great idea if we had that uh, service for a year or two and again, there was a uh, congresswoman <clears throat> that was asked about that. Should we have people serve for a year or two? And she said, and she's a military combat veteran, I believe. She said, uh, well, I don't want somebody in a foxhole who's a draftee next to me. And I thought to myself, you should know better than anybody. What is like 1% of the military actually goes into combat? You have this, this massive support force behind them that 
never shoot a gun at anybody. So we could have that year or two of service where maybe all you're doing is rebuilding our infrastructure. And now you really appreciate what we have here in America because now you're invested in it. I think it's freedom's an amazing thing, but when a kid turns 16, they don't automatically get their driver's license in a car. No, they have to prove that I know how to drive, I have to get insurance, I have to put in the effort. So it's a responsibility to get that freedom. I think all too often people don't really understand what's been sacrificed for the freedom that we have here. I think to the, uh, like kneeling at the football games, uh, how you have so many people saying that is so completely disrespectful to America. Well, because they've seen that flag draped over the coffins of their friends coming back from war zones. Well, they're not seeing the perspective of the people that are kneeling. Well, I see that flag on the jacket of the police who are, are beating up my, my friends here in my neighborhood. <clears throat> so it, it's the exact same flag, but it's completely seen in, in different ways. And by just having a little empathy towards both sides and trying to understand and listen, and again, having some investment in America that as we have it and how good that we have it here with just the freedom of speech and freedom of religion, things like that is such a basic freedom we take for granted that we just don't see worldwide. Oh, I, I absolutely agree with that. And, uh, you know, th- this kind of gets into what I was talking about earlier with sort of the, uh, you know, angry veteran Facebook community trademark, you know, or, um, you know, again, like with the kneeling thing, like I, I don't agree with Colin Kaepernick, like him and I don't see eye to eye on those particular issues. Um, but at the end of the day, like, I don't think taking a stand for that issue, regardless of the fact that I don't agree with him is in and of itself directly disrespectful to veterans, which is how a lot of the community took it. And I think it's, you know, I, I kind of hate that mentality of, well, veterans went out and died, so you can't say X, Y, or Z. Mm. But that's the whole point is, mm-hmm. you know, like freedom of speech is one of the baseline foundations of our country. And, you know, and especially it's more important when you don't agree with that speech, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, so I I don't agree with the stand he is taking, but I 100% agree with his right to take it, and I don't feel like it's directly disrespectful to veterans, you know, just because he's taking that stand on that issue. Um, you know, again, I wouldn't do it. I don't agree with him, but, you know, it, it drives me a little insane when I see sort of the veteran community up in arms about stuff like that, and you see it like so many different issues where it's like, X, Y, or Z, even though the issue has nothing to do with the military, nothing to do with veterans, but it's, it's disrespectful to veterans because it's, you know, disrespectful to America or whatever. And, you know, people fought and died for this flag, which absolutely, but that doesn't mean every single person that has an opinion to disagree with is automatically being disrespectful to veterans. And I think that that shuts down the dialogue, you know, and just widens that gulf between veterans and the population, you know. When And it makes us come off as unapproachable because like, oh, like here you are getting off on this angry veteran rant, you know, again, like, you know, and I see people wearing the, you know, T-shirts or whatever, like disgruntled veterans stay 300 yards back, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> okay, you know, it's mildly amusing the first time I saw it, not like the 50 times after that. But at the end of the day, all you're doing is creating this gap between you and the rest of the population, and making yourself seem unapproachable. Like, you know, 
and you turning yourself, you're sort of turning yourself into this caricature that, you know, people don't want to like, you know, okay, yeah, they'll say thank you for your service. But do you think they want to like have you at a party or something like that? If like you're going to be the disgruntled brooding veteran, like I had a buddy of mine once that was telling me like his goal was to become the brooding veteran by himself in the corner of the bar. I'm like, why is that a goal, man? <laughs> like, like that, that's not, that doesn't mean everything's going okay for you at that point. Like that shouldn't be the goal to wall yourself off from society like that. And I think some veterans, you know, again, here comes the hate mail, like wear that as a badge of honor, like that they've distanced themselves and separated themselves from society. And you have the, you know, the whole Spartans on the wall kind of mentality. And it's like, but I don't think that's a good thing to separate yourself from society and to pull yourself back and make yourself unapproachable and, you know, bring the, you know, veteran concept into every argument. Like, you know, I got, again, like, you know, how many pace, Facebook posts I see start with, as a veteran, like, I feel that blah, 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 blah. Being a veteran has nothing to do with that opinion, man. Like, it's, it's just, it's irrelevant, but... It, it to me it comes off as a way to shut down the conversation hmm. by you know like well I'm I'm throwing that veteran thing there so you can't disagree with me or at least you hate the troops yeah you know? and like that kind of mentality just drives me insane and that's a good point because I like to ask questions as we talked about being curious before so any belief that I have I would like to think that I came to this by reason and logic and research. And people ask me questions all the time. Well, what do you think about this? And my answer is, I don't have an opinion. I, I'm not educated enough in that. I haven't done enough research. So I, I really don't know. I, I don't have anything. But if they want to ask me about my childhood, fighting, the religion I was raised in, any of that stuff, I'm, I'm pretty much an open book. And as long as you're honestly asking, I'm more than happy to tell my story. And I assume that's the way it is with other things. So uh, it, to your point, there was all this talk about the border and how uh, Trump had said, anyone throwing rocks, that's going to be seen as a rifle and we're going to take them out. And I heard that and I said, so if, if you were in Afghanistan and someone threw a rock at you, you're okay then to just blow their head off. No, that's, that's not the rules of engagement. And I started going, not back and forth with a, another veteran, but I was asking more questions. I said, so, in, and I, I point out, I, I flat out said, so if in Afghanistan someone's throwing rocks at you, you're okay to shoot them. That, that's, that's fine. Because I know that it's not. You can't do things like that. And his response was, I've seen so many of my buddies get killed in Afghanistan with rocks. Yes, we will shoot them. And if you think you have all the answers as a civilian, here's the application for you to go be a border guard and you can educate them. <clears throat> And my response was, well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you with my questions. I didn't realize it was such a, a hot button topic for you that I was asking for clarification. And I let it go at that point. But my follow-up questions to that were going to be, can you tell me the names of the troops that were killed by rocks in Afghanistan? I would like to research them. I'd like to know their story. So then I can also share their story as well. I've asked other veterans about that. And the response was always, no one's getting killed with rocks in Afghanistan. <laughs> So I don't know who's, uh, I'll, I'll lean more towards that explanation, but. I think absolutely. Like one of the things that uh, drives me nuts is like, just because you don't have direct experience in something, you can still have an opinion on it. Um, 
you know, you don't have like, you know, you can't say like, well, if you've never been to Afghanistan, you can't have an opinion on Afghanistan because, you know, 99% of the country hasn't been to Afghanistan. And as a country, we better have an opinion on it because we have dudes over there that are still getting blown up. Mm-hmm. And I think really one of the problems is it, it does get to the back burner of the news right now, you know, and nobody really thinks about it for the most part. And so it can kind of just simmer indefinitely at the current rate. Uh, but the pro- problem is, you know, because people like think that, oh, well, I haven't been there, so I can't have an opinion about it. And that, you know, no, you absolutely can have an opinion. I mean, it needs to be an educated ex- opinion. That like, would be nice. You know, I mean, I, I guess, yeah, unfortunately, it doesn't need to be. But it, again, it, like you said, it would be nice. Um, like I remember back when I was in college, I was a political science major, and we had one of the, uh, you know, football players uh, from the Virginia Tech team was in my class. And, you know, not, not to stereotype football players, but uh, we would talk current event stuff at the beginning. And the teacher uh, you know, asked, like, hey, what's some stuff that's going on in the news right now? And the guy puts his hand up and goes, uh, Osama bin Laden's bombing Israel. Like, did, did you just take words you heard in the news and just like string together in <laughs> a sentence, man? Like that is not a thing that's happening or else you are way deeper into some stuff than I am. I don't know. But like, you know, may, maybe that guy should, should uh, throttle back the opinions a little bit. But for the most part, like, no, like have opinions about stuff. And it drives me nuts. Like people say like, you know, oh, you can't have an opinion on this because you weren't in the military or, you know, on the flip side of it, like you can't have an opinion on this issue because you're not a woman or you're not X or you're not Y or you're not Z. And it's like, no, people can still have opinions even if they don't have direct experience. And yeah, like the rock throwing thing, like we, we got rocks thrown at us all the time. And usually our reaction was always be just really impressed that they could get as close to the helicopter as they did with their arms. Like, I'm like, man, that, that kid's got a rifle. there. That's awesome. <laughs> not literally, but like, uh, you know, that was always like impressive, but like, God, no, we can't shoot at them for that, you know? And again, like, Maybe it happened somewhere, but I, I sure haven't heard about it. And, you know, and I, uh, I got buddies that actually are in the Border Patrol and um, or were in the Border Patrol and guarantee you they can't shoot for rocks either. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> uh, my buddy Dave Hagen, who I mentioned earlier, did the podcast. He was telling me about an incident where they were going into, a, I think, a city in Afghanistan and they were surrounded by a bunch of people and, and the rules were cannot shoot anybody, but we need to keep them away. And one of his soldiers took out a slingshot and was firing ball bearings at these kids. And in his mind, it was, well, I'm just keeping them away. And then the the commanders there at the time was like, no, this is not appropriate. And when they went back to base, that soldier was corrected. And then they went back out to that city through a very dangerous part to find that kid that had been injured by that ball bearing and give him treatment because they said, this is not who we are. This is not what we're trying to represent. These were just people that were around us. We do not have the right to just hit them with ball bearings. It may be less than lethal, but definitely do some damage. There's, there's always these rules of engagement. Absolutely. And they can be, I mean, it's tough. Like, uh, because, you know, it, it, on the one hand, like, you know, I mean, you, you're trying not to turn the local population against you. But on the other hand, like, it, it's very stressful, threat, threat, threatening over there. You're sleep deprived. And at the same time, like, also just, you know, we, you know, as a military machine, like, you can only tread so lightly. Uh-huh. Like, I remember once we were, uh, you know, we were cruising Afghanistan and our kind of, like, 
altitude that we normally operated at down south was anywhere between like 30 to 50 feet just because wow. you're trying to stay sort of below what few trees there are out there you know to use that for cover and also because uh in that point the the small arms threat was um you know we were a little less worried than we would be from like stuff that could potentially hit you at high altitude. And so, you know, you're down really low. And the idea being that if you're that low, you're going to cross over somebody's field of vision so quickly that they're not going to be able to actually track you with a weapon uh, at the speeds we're moving at. But the problem is like, so we have these sensors on the helicopter that basically detect IR signatures and, uh, you know, from like a shoulder fired missile being launched at us and they deploy our countermeasures automatically at that point, which is great. But they're pretty sensitive. And so a lot of things like trip that system. So campfires, arc welders, um, sunlight reflecting off certain surfaces will all trip that system and punch flares. Which, you know, if you're at a thousand feet, they burn out before you get there. Like, so we're cruising around and our system trips and like literally like we put a flare through somebody's front door at 50 feet. Jeez. You know, and we're not there. We're not trying to do that intentionally. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not doing it maliciously. And But I guarantee you, those people are not the biggest fans of the United States at that point, as they now have this burning thing sitting in the middle of their home, you know. Um, but what, what are you going to do at that point? It's not, we're not going to turn off our descent defensive system. It's kind of just unintended consequences. And, you know, it's, it's what sort of makes the whole like nation building policing kind of action so difficult at that point it's definitely above my pay grade that much i can say well, is there anything else that you want to share with us about your experiences or final notes or anything no i think we covered uh, all that and more man that's that's pretty much it for me like i said just uh you know the big things again just uh plug in uh Midnight Sun Service Dogs, the Elk Institute, both uh, great programs uh, out there to help people that are dealing with uh, PTSD and that kind of stuff. And again, like, you know, at the end of the day, man, it's it's a small fraction of your life. And so just, you know, keep living it. It's a small fraction, but I, I think it's such a powerful time period as well. And it's really commendable to see somebody who's been able to take that and build off of it and continue to serve too. And Again, just the fact that you signed your name on the dotted line, I think you deserve a free lunch here and there. Well, I appreciate it, man. Thanks. Well, thank you for being here and being our guest on Vet Speak, my friend. <laughs>